He fired 105 rounds from his pistol in the space of around three minutes. I think we have to imagine, um, particularly in view of other mass shootings, that his intention was to kill himself and to cause as much mayhem as possible before he did that. The man that he was just speaking of was Thomas Hamilton, a mass killer of 16 innocent children and their teacher. What drives a man to commit such a horrendous act? Come join me as I take a deep dive into the dark, frigid waters of the mind of a mass murderer. I last left off with Hamilton's behavior getting increasingly worse. His inappropriate actions with the children in his boys' club and the irresponsible use of his guns were being reported to the police. The more that they were reported, it seemed like the more they were getting ignored, if not covered up. His gun license kept getting renewed, and he was still able to carry on the running of his boys' clubs. In the last episode, I also told you that you would be hearing more about D.C. McMurdo. One of the most important duties that D.C. McMurdo had was that he was responsible for issuing firearm certificates. But more on that later. Thomas Hamilton's explanation of his main reason for running the Rovers Clubs was that he wanted to give boys something to do, keep them off the streets, and the discipline was a useful preparation for life. He said that he hated fat children and blamed the parents for allowing them to eat junk food. It's important to note here that Thomas Hamilton was not your pillar of health either. He himself was overweight and had some underlying health issues related to his unhealthy lifestyle. His style of running the clubs attracted the comments from parents and helpers that it was over-regimented and militaristic. He was domineering and would scream and intimidate the boys, and he seemed to enjoy the dominating of young lads. He demanded that these kids perform exercises that were too demanding and over-strenuous for their age and could be damaging to their growing bodies. He was using outdated methods and did not have any education to teach children, let alone physical fitness. He was way out of his league, and he was out of line. Parents were concerned that he was running the clubs without any apparent adult help. He said that he was authorized to be the sole charge of up to 30 boys at once, and of course, this was just another lie. In the summer of 1992, Hamilton ran a sports training course at Dunblane High School. On June the 29th, three boys from the camp wearing only pajamas were found by the local police wandering the streets of Dunblane. A few days later, another complaint about lack of supervision was received from a parent. The Child Protection Unit became involved and sent a report to their colleagues in Fife, where the child lived. Mr. Somerville, a senior assistant director of education of Fife Regional Council, wrote, quote, I feel like the events of the 29th June 1992 in Dunblane, in a sense, serves as a warning. I fear that a tragedy to a child or children is almost waiting to happen. End of quote. Another report on Thomas Hamilton was submitted to the Procurator Fiscal Service on June 9, 1993, this time in relation to complaints about his conduct at three clubs in the central region premises, Denny High School, Sterling High School, and Dunblane High School. For those of us that are not from the UK, the Procurator Fiscal Service 
is responsible for the prosecution of crime in Scotland, the investigation of sudden or suspicious deaths, and complaints of criminal conduct by police officers on duty. From this point on, I'm going to refer to this office as PF, as it's a bit of a mouthful for me. Thomas Hamilton had a key interest in photography. Early on, I stated that Hamilton ran a side business selling and trading cameras and did some amateur photography. His interest in photography became sinister when he began photographing and videotaping the boys from his club without parental consent. It also made the boys very uncomfortable. He had pictures of the boys pinned to the walls all over his house, and he had albums upon albums filled with more photos scattered everywhere. He would hang the pictures of his favorites on the walls. And the pictures were of boys, shirtless, wearing only the small black swimming trunks that he supplied and insisted that the boys wear. He said the boys needed to be shirtless so that he could see if the children were using the right muscle groups. When confronted about the pictures and video, he said that he had used them for promotional purposes and that the parents could have a copy if they asked. The parents and the community were outraged. He didn't feel like he was doing anything wrong. This disturbing activity was reported to the police. The police passed it on to the Child Protection Unit to deal with the complaints. The unit's D.C. Gordon Taylor visited the PF office to ask for a warrant to search Hamilton's flat for photographs. The request was refused on September 10th, 1993. So he continued to take pictures and make videos. A report was sent to D.C. McMurdo, who by that stage was well aware of a catalog of complaints. He was involved in correspondence with the Scottish office about Hamilton and had on occasion become exasperated by it. The complaints continued another from the summer camp at Dunblane High School, and one from Belfront Boys Club. Central Regional Council had been investigating his activities all year. Thomas Hamilton complained in a number of letters that the rumors about him in 1993 caused the collapse of his shop business. However, it was more likely that this was due to the effect of competition from modern do-it-yourself stores and his preoccupation with boys' clubs, camps, and guns. He saw the clubs as a means of making a success of the camps. If he could run boys clubs throughout the winter, then they would be more likely to attend his camps. And it seems like the camps were what he really wanted because the children would be in isolation, away from their parents, not able to call their parents, and he could treat them and behave in any way that he chose. Hamilton was constantly trying to recruit new boys. He used deceit and questionable methods of attracting support. He lied about his qualifications, the number of helpers he had, the intended activities and costs, and he was extremely intolerant of those who questioned the way in which he ran the clubs and camps. He had an inflated view of himself and his own importance and his abilities. In short, he was exhibiting many characteristics of a sociopath and narcissist. D.C. McMurdo wrote in January 14, 1992, Quote, for Mr. Hamilton to see his tiny local organization as a serious rival to the scouting movement indicates a certain lack of perspective. End of quote. And this is coming from the guy who kept renewing his gun licenses. When Hamilton was criticized, he would reply with elaborate self-justification and often adopted attack as a means of defense. Hamilton harbored a long-standing grievance against the scouts and police. The same recurring paranoid theme was evident. That the police were biased in favor of the, quote, Brotherhood of Masons, 
and that there was a brotherhood between the scouts and the police. It was definitely a conspiracy theorist. The following are examples of his paranoid and delusional behavior. He was constantly complaining that he had suffered many abuses by the police. He could never let that go. He couldn't let anything go. When Mr. McFarlane met with him from time to time during the last seven, eight years of his life, he found that Thomas Hamilton's conversation was, quote, all one way. He was anti-police. He was anti-establishment. He was anti-education authority. He seemed to be anti-anybody who opposed his views on how the clubs should be run or whether they should be run, end of quote. Hamilton knew that he was being referred to as a pervert and thought that the teachers and parents had been discouraging boys from attending his clubs. He told an acquaintance once that if he stopped running the clubs, people would have considered that the rumors about him were true. So did he keep running the clubs out of spite? To prove a point? To stick it to the man? Here are some more ways that he treated the children at his boys' clubs. He sought to dominate the boys and was insensitive to their comfort and safety. His camp was described as militaristic and severe. He would verbally and physically assault the children, and he seemed to take pleasure in that. Conversely, there would be a lack of supervision, supplies, and food at the camps. They were found to have insufficient clothing for weather conditions, and he insisted on making videos and taking pictures when the boys were cold and wet and dressed only in their short swim trunks. He insisted that the boys be denied contact with their parents, especially when they became homesick and upset. He took the boys' target shooting and showed them his guns and let them handle them. I think that there is some fetish behavior being exhibited here, liking to, to punish the boys, taking satisfaction in it, having them cold and scantily dressed. He was isolating the children from their parents. The signs are all there. Hamilton obviously felt power and control based on how he treated the children in his clubs and camps, but he did not form any close relationships with an adult of either gender. His natural mother, Agnes, stated that he had one time had a girlfriend when he was younger. However, after she got too serious, he no longer wanted any part of it and he ended the relationship. For F.B. Cullen, who assisted him in his shop, he said that he was nervous among adults and very uncomfortable amongst females in particular. The impression that he made on people varied. Most people found that he made them uncomfortable and did not like to talk to him. They were uneasy about the way that he walked and spoke. He sort of crept around with his head down and he spoke slowly, softly and precisely without any expression in his voice. Mr. Crawford, secretary of the Sterling Rifle and Pistol Club, said, quote, Hamilton was a loner. He wouldn't engage in social conversation with anybody. It is known that women members didn't like being around him. He was a bit of a creep in their eyes. He was unusual and had a tendency to wring his hands. He didn't laugh at anything. He didn't joke at anything, and he was far too polite. End of quote. His neighbors referred to him as sly and devious, and the only thing he wanted to talk about was his boys' clubs and guns. He became very hostile when being confronted about anything, and many of the boys in his club called him weird and often felt scared and intimidated by him. Next, I want to talk about his obsession with guns, because I believe there was a lot of warning signs that were overlooked. How was it that Thomas Hamilton came to hold the firearms and ammunition which he did on March 13, 1996? On February 14, 1997, 
Thomas Hamilton was granted a firearm certificate authorizing him to purchase or acquire a 22 target pistol and hold up to a thousand rounds of 22 ammunition. As I mentioned earlier, he acquired this the same year that he was fired by the scouts and he found out that his sister was his mother and that his parents were his great aunt and uncle. I don't believe that to be a coincidence. On the application as to why he wanted to buy guns and target shoot, he wrote, quote, for a good reason, end of quote. In 1979, he stepped it up again, and now he was able to acquire a 357 revolver and a 270 rifle. After he was able to acquire this, he went out and bought a 357 revolver, the very gun that he used to commit suicide with. He was now able to use full bore bullets for target practice and was a member of the Dunblane Rifle Club and Clyde Valley Pistol Club. His certificate was renewed on February the 14th, 1980. Of course, all of these were renewed by D.C. McMurdo. In 1980 to 1982, he purchased 7,000 rounds of 22 ammunition. On January 15, 1983, his certificate now allowed him to acquire a 22 long range rifle. Between 1984 to 1996, his certificates continued to be renewed and he kept purchasing more powerful weapons and some that he had modified in hopes of becoming an expert shooter. Boys from the Dunblane Rovers Club were taken to the Dunblane Pistol and Rifle Club for instruction, without their parents' knowledge. And he was becoming a fairly good marksman. During the period between 1984 and 1996, he purchased a total of 17,880 rounds of ammunition. Unfortunately, at the time, everything he had purchased was perfectly legal. While Thomas's activities with the boys were going into decline, his interest in firearms grew. In 1996, he bought two holsters, the very ones he wore on the day of the massacre. He was getting himself prepared. There was a noted change in his behavior at the Whitestone Range, where he did his target shooting. Here are some observations made by Mr. G. Smith, the president of the shooting club at that time. Smith noted that his shooting was reasonably good, and it surprised him that he fired his gun rapidly all the time. He told Hamilton that with a bit of practice, he could compete in some competitions. On March 2, 1996, Hamilton was given a lift to the shooting club. At the meeting, he again fired rapidly. He started to do more strange things. One of them was that he would put red and orange stickers on paper targets as guides for him to aim at. He was told to remove them. Mr. Crawford, an employee at the range, was conducting a pistol training in which each shooter was to fire three rounds at each target. Hamilton rapidly unloaded 12 bullets at a time, and he was admonished for that. His behavior was getting even more bizarre. He was often found stroking his gun and talking to it like it was a baby, and he was clearly practicing preparing himself for the day of the massacre. I think Mrs. Hillard, the gym teacher that was shot and survived, best describes this. When I found out that everything he had done until he pointed that gun and hit the, and fired at me initially because I took the first shot was legal. Everything he'd done, in other words, he'd practiced his massacre. 
I was furious. I was, I had never seen a gun in my life before. I knew nothing about gun control. But when I found out that, then that made me so angry that there was no way that we would let this rest. I think that we can all agree that Hamilton's behavior, even though it was being reported, was being pushed under the rug. This clip here from a government employee angers me because you can clearly see that his way of thinking was part of the problem. He gave no impression of guilt to me. Uh, He just quite frankly explained the predicament that he was in and how serious it was from the boys' club point of view that he should continue to have facilities. And if I could do anything to help him, would I do so? And I said I would. If uh, Hamilton had appeared before me, he'd have presented me with a partially filled in form. I could have questioned him on what uh, the entries in the form. And from what I knew of him, I wouldn't have hesitated to give him a gun certificate because I uh, knew of nothing against him. I mean, if a chap is accused of of, uh, sexual misconduct, if you like, it doesn't mean that he would be irresponsible with a weapon. But I wouldn't know. But I would have no reason not to have pushed forward his application. I think there's some problems with his logic there. On February 1995, Thomas Hamilton's firearm certificate was due for renewal. A young police constable, Anne Anderson, went to Hamilton's home in Sterling. It was the first firearm certificate renewal she had ever checked, and she had a strange feeling about the man. She felt he was gloating when he showed her one of his guns. When she checked his criminal intelligence file, she saw only three lines on Hamilton, a glaring deficiency being that so many complaints came in about him. Where were they? She reported her misgivings to her superior, but she was told that the force knew all about Hamilton and not to be concerned about it. So despite her feelings and everything else that was known to Central Scotland Police, Hamilton's firearm certificate was renewed on the 28th of February by D.C. McMurdo. It took no more than a few minutes to stamp it approved. Hamilton's other activities were still a cause for anxiety among a number of people whose children became involved in his boys' clubs. On December 1994, two men had visited Hamilton's flat, demanding the return of photographs that he had taken at one of the boys' clubs. The police were called because of the disturbance that the men had caused. After explaining the situation, they were told to leave things in the hands of the police. It seemed that everyone was being told to put their trust in Central Scotland Police because they knew all about Hamilton. By September 1995, Thomas Hamilton's relationship with guns turned from a hobby that he loved to a dangerous obsession. D.C. McMurdo's approval of his license in February 1995 had ensured that for the next three years, Hamilton would be able to hold and purchase the guns on a certificate without anyone in authority checking whatever changes might occur in his personality or mental state. His fitness to use arms could only be judged by his fellow shooters, and none of them did anything. On September 11th, he purchased a second Browning 9mm pistol, the first gun he'd acquired in nine years. Eleven days later, he bought ammunition, apparently for the first time since October 1987. Three of Hamilton's boys' clubs had ended in March 1995, but he started another one at Bishop's Briggs on the outskirts of Glasgow. 
Strathclyde Regional Council contacted Central Regional Council about his application for a lease for his club. Regional Councillor Robert Bell, then the convener of the Education Committee, had given Hamilton a reference that included the required phrase, quote, the leaders are known to me and are worthy of support, end of quote. Given Hamilton's history with the Central Regional Council, it is incredible that this reference was ever signed, especially as in August 1995, the council had held a meeting with the specific aim at protecting children by finding ways of stopping Hamilton's activities in their own area. There was no follow-up meeting to this. By September 1995, there had been a substantial decline in his clubs. Three clubs had ended and one other had shut down because there was only one boy signed up. He continued to circulate a large amount of flyers, but no one wanted their children to be in his care. He was getting more and more irate with what he said was false, misleading, and unfounded gossip that had been circulated by the scout officials. He tried to set up clubs and recruit boys further and further away from the Dunblane area. He was able to set up in the town of Bishopsbriggs and to use the facilities at Thomas Muir High School. The council of that town, Mr. Ball, said he had misgivings about having Hamilton set up shop, but he felt that he couldn't refuse them. The thing is, Councillor Ball was told by the councillor of a close-by town who knew Hamilton to keep a close watch on him. Other things started to change in Hamilton's behavior. He actually persuaded a parent to take over one of his boys' clubs in Falkirk, which is very strange as he was so protective of his clubs. Hamilton was starting to let go of the clubs that he guarded so fiercely. He also had an undergraduate student assist him with the Bishopsbriggs Club, but it didn't work out well. Thomas was controlling and constantly criticized Mr. Bull's training and coaching techniques. After a short time, Mr. Bull tendered his resignation. He had started in February 1996, but he said he would stay until Easter in order to give Hamilton a chance to replace him. On the 23rd of January, Thomas purchased a second 357 Smith & Wesson revolver. During the five months since 1995, he had bought thousands of rounds of ammunition. His boys' clubs were attracting less and less support, and on January 26, he wrote a private and confidential letter to Councillor Ball, which he nevertheless gave to a number of primary school head teachers and the scouts. He complained about rumors being spread by staff of primary schools and the malicious attitude of scouts' leaders. Quote, The teachers at Dumblane Primary have contaminated all the older boys with this poison. End of quote. He mentioned how even former cleaners and dinner ladies at Dumblane Primary School have been told that he was a pervert. Quote, I have no criminal record, nor have I ever been accused of sexual abuse by any child. I am not a pervert. End of quote. On February 11, 1996, Hamilton wrote to his MP, Michael Forsyth, again complaining about malicious gossip circulated by certain scouts officials. He added that the long-term effect, quote, had been a death blow to my already difficult work in providing sports and leisure activities to local children, as well as my public standing in the community, end of quote. Around this time, there had been a disturbing incident at Hamilton's house involving James Gillespie, up until then a frequent visitor. 
Hamilton had pointed a 9mm pistol at him and pulled the trigger because Gillespie had told him that if he had kids, he wouldn't send them to one of Hamilton's clubs. The chamber was empty, and Gillespie didn't report the incident. Earlier that day, he had been on the phone to a photography acquaintance, but had hardly spoken. The last thing he said before he rang off was, quote, I'm going back to my guns, end of quote. He also phoned the Scottish Scouts headquarters to find out who their patron was. The next day, he wrote to the Queen, complaining about his treatment at the hands of the Scouts and asking her, as a patron, for some kind of intervention to help him restore his reputation in the community. Copies of this letter were sent to Councillor Robert Ball, Michael Forsyth, the Scout Association and the head teachers of Bannockburn and Dunblane Primary Schools. Sometime towards the end of the first week in March, Hamilton met an ex-policeman in a store in the Thistle Centre in Stirling. During a 15-minute conversation, he told this man how much the authorities were against him, and he talked about Michael Ryan and the Hungerford shootings and about a firearms incident at nearby Cowie. In case you're not aware of what the Hungerford massacre was, it was a series of random shootings in Hungerford, England, on August 19, 1987, when Michael Robert Ryan, an unemployed antique dealer and handyman, fatally shot 16 people, including a police officer, before shooting himself. The shootings, committed using a handgun and two semi-automatic rifles, occurred in several locations, including a school he once attended. Fifteen other people were also shot, but survived. So, this is the person he wanted to talk about with a cop. And he quizzed the man about whether the police involved at Cowie had been armed or not, and how quickly a firearms response unit could get to the scene of an incident. He had also been quizzing some of the boys that had attended the clubs about the layout of Dunblane Primary School and what a weekly schedule would look like. Thomas Hamilton spent the morning of March 11th in Stirling in the library, talking with acquaintances and collecting a trophy from a shop in Upper Craigs. In the evening, as he left one of the boys' clubs, he said to his assistant, Thank you very much, Ian. See you next Monday. On Monday, March 13th, 1996, Thomas Hamilton was at Dunblane Station catching a train to Stirling. No one knew when he had arrived in the town, nor what he had did that morning. In Sterling, he went to hire a white van. He later visited his mother for six hours, had a bath and something to eat, and chatted with her. She found nothing unusual in his manner. In the evening, he had a phone conversation with an acquaintance in Aberdeen, who thought that he sounded down. Thomas Hamilton was in debt. He had fallen foul of the photography community, and his photographic business was down the tubes. He was apparently running the boys' clubs and the camps at a loss. In February, a summary warrant had been granted as a result of continued non-payment of tax council arrears. The enforcement had been delayed for two weeks, but the date due for the money to be paid was March the 13th, 1996. Earlier that morning, neighbors who saw him say he was cheery. I'm going to play some clips right now from the neighbors to describe his behaviour. He was just standing there with a plastic scraper taking the snow and ice off the van. I mean, and when I asked him, he just came over and took the paper and said, right, come in, 
just turned and I said, thanks very much, and rolled up the window and drove off. And that was it. He obviously had been to a shop for a paper because the paper was under his arm. And he was dropped off in a car, which I assumed someone had given him a lift. And then when the car moved off, he waved to them. And he crossed over to this wee white van and cleared the, the snow from the windscreen. And was there anything strange or peculiar Nothing. about the way he behaved? He was smiling. He was smiling? Uh-huh. He set off to drive to Dunblane. His movements, later analyzed by the police, had been recorded in part by CCTV cameras. He was seen by witnesses first at the back entrance of the school and then two minutes or so later at the front entrance of the Dunblane Primary School. At 9.30 a.m., he parked his van beside a telegraph pole in the lower car park. He had taken out a pair of pliers and used them to cut the telephone wires at the foot of the telephone pole. These did not serve the school, but a number of adjoining houses. He then crossed the parking lot carrying the weapons, ammunition, and other equipment and entered the school by way of a door on the northwest side, which was next to the toilets beside the gym. He likely didn't use the main entrance because he didn't want to be seen. The school that day had started at 9 a.m. for all primary classes. Morning assemblies were held in the school's assembly hall, which were situated between the dining area and the gymnasium. The school had 720 pupils, making it one of the largest primary schools in Scotland. One of the classes was Primary 1, which was a class of 28 pupils, along with her teacher, Mrs. Gwen Mayer. The first class of the day was gym, and they had all changed for the lesson before the assembly. 25 members of the class were five years of age, and three were six years of age. Mrs. Mayer was 47. At the end of the assembly, all the students went to their respective classrooms, except for primary one, with who Mrs. Mayer had made their way to the gym passing the entrance which Hamilton used to gain access to the school before entering the gymnasium by way of the door at the north end. The phys ed teacher, Mrs. Eileen Harold, was already in the gym along with a supervisory assistant, Mrs. Mary Blake, who had been there to relieve Mrs. Mayer so that she could attend a meeting. I'm going to use some clips here from the gym teacher, Mrs. Eileen Harold, to describe the events that took place. And the first five little ones ran into the gym full of beans, shouting, ah, great, you know, there's lots of nice things. But, you know, it's very important that safety was the first, ironically, safety is the first thing that you teach them. So they were frog marched out again and made to line up with the rest of them and told that they had to wait until I told them to come in. So we'd just started the warm-up and, uh, and that's when it happened. Literally, I would say about five minutes into the lesson, um, I was quite near the door and he came through the door, um, a glass door, just banged the door right open. And from the moment he approached the adults first and he walked towards me and started shooting. And my initial reaction was to put my arms up, which is what I did. So that's why I was put, shot through the arms. Um, and um, from then on in, it was rapid fire shooting and killing instantly. Instantly, because after he turned from me, he turned to Gwen, who was sitting at a bench at the back of the gym, and then the other adult who was a teacher helper uh, was also shot. 
and then he targeted the children at very close range afterwards. I knew that there was people dead. Yes, yes, oh yeah. Instantly. Oh yeah. To the side, there was a huge storage area where all the large equipment, mats, etc., were kept. And I somehow managed to realise that that's where we had to make our way to for some shelter. Um, and that's what some of us managed to do. A group of children, Mary and myself, and covered in the floor. What happens in that situation where you're in a life-threatening situation is some of your senses clamp down, but some become so heightened. And my sense of hearing was so heightened. I was aware, although I couldn't actually see him, of where he was and what he was doing. And I was trying to be proactive and think about how we could protect ourselves and what we could do in that situation. The echo of the gym, the gym had a terrible echo anyway, but it was repeatedly the, the close shots of his gun going off. I was trying to be aware of where he was in the gym. That's what I was trying to do. Where is he? Is he at the top of the gym? Is he coming our way again? Just trying to be aware. Not I really could do anything about it, but just trying to be aware of where he was. And there was a little boy who kept saying over and over again, what a bad man, he's a bad man, he's a bad man. And we want him to be quiet, be quiet, don't, shh, shh, don't make a sound. Um, and eventually he was quiet and, uh, and didn't move, lay down, was still. Then everything went silent. There was an eerie silence. He shot himself. And just for, it felt like quite a long time, there was calm, there was silence. And I don't know how long it lasted, whether it lasted just half a minute, whatever. But then people began to react to their injuries. The children started to moan and to cry. And then help came into the gym then. An unreal situation, really. They were screaming from fear. And from pain. Strangely enough, I never actually was, although I was aware that I'd been shot, pain wasn't my initial reaction, actually. It was a, an awareness of what exactly was happening in the gym because I felt responsible. Elsewhere in the school, the assistant headmistress ran to the headmaster's office, Mr. Ronald Taylor, who was on the phone. He had heard the shots and ended his phone call. He ran towards the gym and was told by a passing student teacher that he saw a man shoot himself in the head. In the minutes that it took for the headmaster to arrive, 17 people were dead. Mr. Taylor burst into the gym and was horrified by what he described as, quote, a scene of unimaginable carnage, one's worst nightmare, end of quote. The janitor entered the gym and thought he saw Hamilton moving, so he ran over and kicked the fallen gun away from him. He also removed the gun from his hand and threw it aside. Hamilton was already dead. The next daunting and heartbreaking task was having to identify the little children who had died. Their teacher, Mrs. Mayer, had died, so the task was even more difficult because she knew all of her students. Other staff, less familiar than the teacher, had to assist. It was an extremely harrowing experience for all the members of staff who were involved. 
Matters were made even more difficult as one child was wearing a school garment of another student with their name tag on it. Another student had stayed home that day. The first ambulance arrived at the school at 9.57 in response to the call at 9.43. A team of doctors and a nurse from the healthcare centre at Dunblane arrived on the scene at approximately 10.04, as well as a community nurse and doctors from the Dune Health Centre soon after. The first police officers arrived from Dunblane Police Office at about 9.50 a.m. in response to the telephone call from Mr. Taylor. They immediately summoned further police assistance, and the officers assisted in the gym and took steps to clear a way for the arrival of the ambulances. The chief constable also delegated various tasks to his commanders. The police were faced with a very considerable task in dealing with the incident. They had to cordon off the school buildings because terrified parents, onlookers, and members of the media had rushed to the school. There were approximately two to 300 people there, and ambulances had to make their way through the crowd, and many more were arriving rapidly. Then they had to identify the deceased, the children that had passed. It was an incredibly difficult task, considering that the children were being taken to the hospital before being identified, and of course, the utter chaos created by the tragedy. They also had to help organize reuniting the parents with the children who had been unharmed at the school. That took approximately two to three hours. By 1.30, all the injured children had been identified and parents notified. Up until this point, the parents knew something terrible had happened, but they didn't know the details. They were unaware that there had been a shooting. The police began to break the details about the massacre at 1.30 to the public, while the parents of the deceased children were still in the dark. The doctors at the scene remained there to help support the families. The parents of the deceased children had been sequestered and were becoming more and more frantic by the minute. As the chaos ensued outside the tiny room, 15 sets of parents, friends and family were waiting to find out not only the fate of their precious little children, but what even had happened. They had been kept in the dark. Most of their questions being rudely blown off by impatient and surly police. They knew things were getting more and more grim as they were moved further away from the other parents, and their group was getting smaller. They were praying and negotiating with their God or the universe that their sweet child was safe and sound, and they would do anything, sacrifice anything, if they were alive. It was almost 3 p.m., and they were desperate. One eight-month pregnant mom was barely coping. A press conference had already been given by the police, and the world had known what was happening for an hour and a half before the parents of the children who had passed found out. Finally, just after 3 p.m., the parents of those sweet, innocent little children whose lives were violently ripped away from them were told. After a moment of silence and disbelief, heart-wrenching wails of indescribable grief could be heard. There were doctors and nurses and social workers there for support, but nothing could take away their pain. One of the parents, Mick North, slowly got up and left. He slowly walked home, numbing, trying to figure out what he was going to do in his empty house. He had lost his wife, the love of his life, to cancer two years prior and had been raising his daughter Sophie on his own. He was a wonderful father and he and Sophie had an incredible bond. 
He could not imagine life without them both. He could not bring himself to arrange another funeral. His friends gathered around him and helped him with everything he needed. The town of Dunblane and the surrounding communities rallied together to support each other. There was an overwhelming tribute to the children and their teacher, Mrs. Mayor, of flowers and cards and candles and stuffed toys almost as high as the fences surrounding the school as far as the eyes could see. This was symbolic of their love and support. There was something else brewing among all that love and support, sadness and rage and disbelief and heartache. There was a communal voice that was crying out, never again. After the massacre, appalled residents of Dunblane and bereaved relatives demanded to know how a person like Hamilton could be allowed to own guns. A highly successful campaign in the months after Dunblane against gun ownership culminated in a petition being handed to the government with almost 750,000 signatures. In response, the Conservative Prime Minister John Major set up a public inquiry to look into gun laws and assess ways to better protect the public. On the 17th of December 1997, a year and a half after the Dunblane Massacre, the Firearms Amendment Number 2 Act 1997 came into force. UK law members had passed a ban on private ownership of all guns in mainland Britain, giving the country some of the toughest anti-gun legislation in the world. After the shooting, there were firearm amnesties across UK, resulting in the surrender of thousands of firearms and rounds of ammunition. Britain has never had a gun culture like the United States, but there were about 200,000 legally registered handguns in Britain before the ban, most owned by sports shooters. All small-bore pistols, including 22 caliber, were included in the ban, along with rifles used by target shooters. Penalties for anyone found in the possession of illegal firearms range from heavy fines to prison terms of up to 10 years. The public generally supported the ban, with most saying that they saw no need for guns. The UK has not seen another mass shooting using handguns since the Dunblane Massacre. There has only been one mass shooting since in 2010 where Derek Bird killed 12 people with a shotgun and a 22 caliber rifle. One of the parents, Mick North, decided he was going to do whatever he could to change the gun laws, and he played a major role in doing so. He had to move from Dunblane because it was too painful for him to stay there. But he also wrote a book that I use for, for some of the information here called Dunblane, Never Forget. It's, it's a good book to, to pick up. Just It gives a, a real insight as to what the parents have gone through. One thing has come into the news recently is that the Cullen Report, which was the investigation that looked into everything that had gone on leading up to the massacre and what could be changed, what could be done. But why it has come up in the news recently is because Cullen put a 100-year ban on the opening of its records. So what are they hiding? It is believed that the 100-year ban had been put on it to cover up the police reports about the incidents of alleged abuse at the summer camp that were run by Hamilton. So it is believed that there is a lot of cover-up in that report. So hopefully one day soon we can find out 
what actually happened if they're hiding something and put more safety measures into place to stop something like this from happening again. On February 14th, 2018, Nicholas Cruz opened fire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, killing 17 students and a member of the staff and injuring 17 others. The survivors of the Dunblay massacre put together this message for the victims of the Florida shooting. Dear students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School, on the most poignant day of the year for us, we wanted to reach out and offer our deepest and most heartfelt sympathies to you, to your teachers, and to the families and friends of those who lost their lives at your school on the 14th of February. We have watched and listened with tremendous admiration as you have spoken out for what you believe should happen now, a significant change in the availability of guns in your country. 22 years ago, our own lives were devastated when a gunman walked into Dumbling Primary School in Scotland and shot dead 16 five and six-year-old children and their teacher and injured many more. The child victims were our sons and our daughters, our brothers and our sisters. The teacher was our wife, our sister and our mother. The gunman owned legal weapons and it was so easy for him to obtain these legal weapons. And like you, we vowed to do something about it. Most politicians listened and acted. Laws were changed, handguns were banned, and the level of gun violence in Britain is now one of the lowest in the world. There have been no more school shootings. We persuaded the British lawmakers not to be swayed by the vested interests of the gun lobby. We asked them to put public safety first and to heed the will of the majority of the British people. We want you to know that change can happen. It won't be easy, but continue to remind everybody of what happened at your school and the devastation that can be caused by just one person and just one legally owned gun. Never let anyone forget. There will be attempts to divide you, to deflect you, and doubtless to intimidate you, but you have already shown great wisdom and strength. We wish you more of that wisdom and strength for this toughest of tasks, one that will be so important in order to spare your fellow Americans having to suffer the way that you have. Wherever you march, whenever you protest, however you campaign for a more sensible approach to gun ownership, we will be with you in spirit. Tonight, we will be lighting 17 candles for those who died in Dunblane and remembering the 17 whose lives were lost in Parkland. Our thoughts will be with every other victim of gun violence. We offer you our full support for the March for Our Lives and truly hope you are successful. It can be done. I'd like to take a moment to honour those who had passed and I'm going to say their names and maybe we can, can think about them and and their and their loved ones and honor them at the end of this i'm going to play a song that was written by a group of musicians to recognize the loss and the proceeds went to the people of dunblane let's honor victoria elizabeth clydesdale emma elizabeth crozier Melissa Helen 
Curry, Charlotte, Louise, Dunn, Kevin, Alan, Hassel, Ross, William, Irvine, David, Charles, Kerr, Mari, Isabel, Macbeth, Gwen, Mayer, Brett, McKinnon, Abigail, Joanne, McLennan, Emily, Morton, Sophie, Jane, Lockwood, North, John, Petrie, Joanna Caroline Ross, Hannah Louise Scott, and Megan Turner. Lord, take this badge off of me. I can't use it anymore. It's been too dark, too dark to see. I felt like knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. I feel I'm knocking on heaven's door. Guns have caused too much pain This town will never be the same So for the pins of done blame We ask please never again The Lord is my shame 